welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Matthew Penny is in the building. What up, Ben? I feel like we should have just kept recording for our last podcast and stayed here. That's how long our conversations generally go. So we're just formally recording for the second time in, I don't know, four or five days. We're in the Upside Down. It's snowing outside in Boston. It's March. And uh, we're making the best. We're making do with what we have here. Yeah, I mean, we we had some we had some scheduling issues this week, unfortunately, that uh, ended up resulting in a later show than what is typical for us this week. But we're here. We're happy. We're happy to chat and happy to talk. Uh, we we were like in the middle of like group texting a friend, and I feel like we uh, we just like are totally bailing on the friend right now <laughs> to have like our own conversation. I feel yeah, bad about we're, that. We're, we're recording the conversation here as opposed to responding to who's getting fill in the blank job and is this fill in the blank guy any good and yeah. none of us have the answers but we think we do sometimes oh my god uh today on the show we are going to talk uh the prospects with the most to gain and lose in march madness so every year people overreact to small sample sizes of march madness these are the most important games they should count for more but we still get some overreactions hence why the malachi effect our uh long-term effect on guys that rise out of nowhere and become these elite level prospects uh, has been a real thing. And we're going to talk about eight guys that we think are legitimately uh, at risk of rising or falling and like have a lot to gain or lose by their performances in March madness, be it conference tournaments and NCAA tournament, or in the case of the first guy, just the NCAA tournament at this point. Uh, then we're going to do mailbag. We're going to do prospects of the week. And then we are going to talk about the Batman yeah. uh, as we promised last week. Okay. Penny, I wanted to start with Chet Holmgren, who I do think legitimately has a lot to gain this week. I don't know if he has like so much to lose this week. Uh, I think that he will go somewhere in the top four, but as you have seen, and as I have seen, and as my text message will tell messages will tell you, there is a small pushback occurring to Chet right now in a way that is already getting very tiring. It feels like, uh, as we watch, uh, March madness unfold, uh, and this is not just happening in like public spheres either. Like you talk to people that work for NBA teams that have to actually be the teams that draft Chet Holmgren and have to uh, be the people that manage his weight gain and his physicality and everything like that. Um, there's some, you know, concern as higher level decision makers start to get involved in the process because part of what happens in March and part of why March madness ends up resulting in these overreactions is that higher level executives start going to games and in-person scouting more and more. This isn't to say that, you know, general managers aren't out throughout the course of the season, but they have more going on for them. Like think about this year in the NBA, think about how many COVID absences there were. Think about how many like just different, phone calls that teams had to get on just to field an NBA team every night, let alone uh, to prepare for next year. Then the trade deadline happens in early February and, 
you know, your phone lines are inundated there and you know, fewer opportunities to go out and evaluate scouts early in February. So conference tournament time late in the regular season and March Madness with the NCAA tournament uh, often result in general managers and high-level executives getting out more. And as those guys have gotten out more, I think there has started to we've started to have the same conversations about Chet that we had early in the season, I think is the way to put it. Oh, how will Chet's frame react to the NBA? How will, um, how can this guy who's 190 pounds be effective at the next level? And I thought we were past this man. Oh, no way. I I thought, I thought there was a chance that we were past this, but it's, it's already proving that this is going to be the most hiring NBA draft conversation. So I would like to do it in March and knock it out. <laughs> you want to have like, your conversation in March. There's going to be plenty of other conversations. Like you said, you know how jarring it must be, though, to be an NBA GM and or, or a higher-level decision maker and your scout's like, here's the guys to watch. You walk in the gym, you're like, who and what is that? How is he moving this way? How is he doing this? He's too skinny. And then amplify that by all the casual fans. I don't mean that as a negative, like you're casual but the new eyeballs are on Chet Homer for the first time. Yep. And we have to explain like, well, no, 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 it, it actually has worked. He was at, no, no, no. He's, he was MVP of U19. Like he, he's actually really, really good. Like, well, I, yeah. I don't know how it works. So I get it from that perspective of. Oh, wait, your, he was one of the five most valuable players in college basketball this year. It worked. <laughs> yeah. Trust yeah. us. No, it, it did. And, Oh, he's in the West Coast conference. Competition is not good enough. It, the conversation is going to continue for months on end. We can have ours now. I, I, I see why people have some level of hesitation and why you have to dig in deeper. So I think that like a lot of the conversations that have happened around chat have often been formulated, I guess, around what chat can't do, right? Or what he doesn't have. Here, here's the thing with chat. And I think it's worth reframing the conversation this way. When I watch and evaluate chat, it's more that when I like actually am sitting down and watching tape, I'm trying to figure out what he can't do hmm. uh, more so than what he can do. You would think the things that would be most affected by his, um, by his lack of strength or his lack of physicality, uh, his ability to rebound, his rim protection, you would think that those would have been a struggle this year based off the conversation, but they're not. Uh, he is currently, he has a 28.4 defensive rebounding rate. That is top 20 in all of college basketball across all conferences, period. Uh, I would venture that outside of Oscar Shibway, I've not looked at this number. I can look it up as, you know, we bounce back and forth, but like I would bet that outside of Oscar Shibway, that's probably the highest defensive rebounding rate among any uh, legitimate NBA draft prospect. Uh, looking now, as I say that, Jabari Walker and Trevion Williams are higher uh, okay. in Chet Holmgren's top, top, top Jalen Williams. But he's in the top five uh, mm-hmm. among all defensive rebounders uh, in college basketball in terms of percentages of two-point misses gathered. He is a top 10 uh block rate guy in college basketball. And frankly, I think that that understates what his value is as a rim protector because guys just like, don't go in on him anymore. You watch that Alabama game. That's the one that like sticks out fresh in my mind. 
JD Davison just like was terrified of going inside on him. Like he was just like, I don't know how to manage this weird alien guy who has right. long arms and uh, is going to swat the shit out of me. It's really kind of remarkable. And by the way, among legitimate NBA draft prospects. So I don't know, like I, I personally don't see Jamari on sharp as like a high level NBA draft prospect, but you know, there might be some people who do. Um, Chet Holmgren is second behind Walker Kessler in block rate right now. Uh, so let's say among top 100 guys on my board, he's second in block rate. So, all of those things work. Like we've seen them. We've seen them on big stages. We've seen them on little stages. Like we've, we've seen that the things that make Chet uh, work are great. And then you move to the offensive side. He's a 40% three point shooter. He passes the ball at a high level. He like can finish at a high level. He's a 70% true shooting percentage. He handles the ball like he grabs and goes on the break. He had a play against San Francisco where he like pump faked at the top of the key, dribbled right, spun back, drop step, like threw down a ridiculous like tomahawk dunk. I mean, what? Uh, I get that he doesn't look like the archetypical player. I get it. And I get that that's going to be why there's always going to be this consternation about Chet Holmgren. But like this guy, it's weird. Like I keep seeing all these all American teams come out and people have like drew Timmy is Gonzaga's all American, or they don't have Chet Holmgren first team all American. Like, holy shit. Chet Holmgren's been <laughs> unbelievable this year. He's been yeah. like, have you just not been watching? Like, did you tune out of Gonzaga after a certain point? Like maybe you did, but like, I mean, from the time that it turned to like January 15th, Chet Holmgren has been the best player in college basketball period. Like I will, I will listen to Oscar Shibway discussion, but Johnny Davis has not been great as he's dealing. It seems like with some injuries mm-hmm. to close the season. Um, you know, there are a few other guys that have certainly been awesome. Keegan Murray, Kofi Coburn, EJ Liddell, et cetera. We can go down the list. A lot of them are in the big 10. Chad Holmgren has been the best player in college basketball since like January 15th. He's been absolutely fucking unbelievable. And we need to reframe the conversation about how complete his game is and how good he is while ha- while he does have this like real question surrounding him in terms of what his frame looks like. But for me, like he's not a tier one player, like in the class of like Cade Cunningham and, you know, Luke Doncic. And I had Deandre Ayton in that range too. Like, I don't think he's that guy. And I was wrong on my DeAndre evaluation, but like, I don't think he's that guy. I do think he's like top of the market, like tier two, like LaMelo ball level, really, really high level prospect. And it's because of how complete he is as a basketball player, uh, even in spite of the lack of strength and that he doesn't look like the archetypical player that, you know, fits into a neat box for NBA yeah. executives. Well, and I, so we we talked about we're gonna go Chet today, and we're trading text messages like, are we really gonna do this again? We gotta talk Chet Holmgren like again, and we are. And and I reached out to about a half dozen scouts this morning, NBA scouts, and I said, is the weight an issue? Everyone's like making it an issue again. I think four of them said no quickly. Uh, one of them said it is, and another said kind of on the fence. There is this kind of split. It's not a consensus of don't worry about it because there you do have fear if you bring a guy in and just his body type doesn't have the widest shoulders his gait's a little funky like i would understand if you have some hesitation based on can he get there i remember 
the similar talk with Kevin Durant. Chet Holmgren's not Kevin Durant, but it was body type. He couldn't bench 185 pounds in the combine. Uh, I remember reading Slam Magazine when he was in high school that was eating peanut butter and jellies before bed because he couldn't put on any weight. What are we going to do? So I, I dug up this old Sonics article that he was 215 pounds at pre-draft, and by November of his rookie year, he was 227. Now he's closer to 240. It's going to happen in time. 18 months ago, Chet Holmgren was closer to 165 pounds. I'm not trying to be uh, over the top. or like That was closer to what his weight is now. He's 195 pounds 18 months later. He's going to continue on this, but it's going to take diet. It's going to take strength training. It's going to take getting in the right system and a little bit of patience. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but we're not talking about – we talk about top prospects. It's much more centered on that than it is that what can Jabari Smith maybe do off the dribble? Can Paolo Bancaro really shoot? Can he really finish in a lane? Is his passing good enough when he needs to make reads? Uh, can Jay Nivey do anything in the mid-range? It's, it's so singly focused on Chet's weight. It's not going to work. And and also, I'm just done with the tired conversations of, well, it's the West Coast Conference. Like, it, it's not really great. Um, it, it, is it translatable? It's just the way he plays there. He's beating up on guys. It, it's still a good conference. I understand that the the best teams in that conference aren't the same as the SEC. So Walker Kessler's block rate and, and numbers are, are more impressive because there's more upper-tier teams. But the stuff that Chet's doing, it's not necessarily, and this, this might seem as a contradiction, it's not like bully ball where he's just like, over the top of people like rebounding, snatching back, dunking it like one of these weird highlight videos. He's still doing it within the flow of the offense. He's still pulling up for threes on the break. He's still doing uh, pick and pop, shot fake, hit opposite, spin, dunk, protecting the rim. He he did it again last night. He's in drop coverage. He drops back and he still blocks the shot blocker. I don't care where you are, what level. Like he does special things that we don't highlight enough while focusing on the negative way more than we should. It. it- it eludes me, like, in, in a real way. Like, you look at the ACC this year. Like, the West Coast Conference, it's worse than the ACC. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, it's not nearly as deep as the issue. Uh, the top teams, like, San Francisco is probably better than any team outside of Duke in the ACC this year. Just straight up. They're better. Like, St. Mary's is better than any team in the ACC this year outside of Duke. You, you um, could argue the size thing, though, because when Duke's playing North Carolina, it's Armando Baycott. Like, Jake LaRavia is still bigger than uh, Jazz. Is from, he? Yeah, I think so. Like, Matias Tass is bigger than those guys. Like, Jan Masalski is bigger than Jake LaRavia. Not as big as Armando Baycott. Baycott's like a legit, like, sure. you know, big that they don't face in the WCC. That I agree with. But you know what? Those guys, like, take on Drew Timmy anyway. So it, it's. I don't know that the, the, the conversation about the league strength, like freaking Santa Clara has an NBA prospect this year in oh, Jalen yeah. Williams that we've yeah. broken down. Like, oh, yeah. he's, like of the week. Like, yeah. he's really, really good. Uh, like it's BYU is a legit top 50 team. Like you go through the top of the WCC. Gonzaga is number one on Ken Palm. St. Mary's is 18. San Francisco's 21. BYU's 50. Santa Clara is 67. That is one, two, three, four, five teams in the top 67 of Ken Palm. Do you know how many teams the ACC has? One, two, three, four, five. They have the same number of top 67 teams. <laughs> yeah. Like, I get that, like, that bottom half of the WCC is not as good, but we got a lot of sample of Chet Holmgren playing, like, good players this year. Caleb Lohner at BYU is, like, a big human being that is physical. Like there are moments where we've seen that this year and 
it's just a very, it's already a tiring conversation to me um, based off, based off of people that did not actually watch the WCC and assume that the WCC is bad. When in reality, this is the best the WCC has ever been. And it is those top five teams in WCC are very commensurate with the top five teams in the ACC this year. And, and Chet, with the physicality and the style stuff too, like there was a play last night where, yeah, I could tell he's frustrated because if you watched the game last night, he had like three fouls that should not have gone his way. They were, but he was kind of like picking his spots a little bit because he didn't want to get his fourth. Yeah. So he missed like a call or something happened down the other end, and he's he's mad. So he, he comes. It's a shot off the rim. He catches it. He drop steps, bumps into the guy, and dunks and like hangs on the rim with one hand. He's not like afraid where he's catching the rebound. No. Let me let me do like a jump hook, like fade away. Let me um let me pump fake and like he's going still trying to go through your chest. Now you're gonna that's, bump. That's ba- like most of the appeal of Chet Holmgren. Right. You're, you're, like you're, he's, he's going to bump back against bigger like NBA soft. players. I, I get it, but he's not soft. And if he does have to bump back to the NBA, he has really nice touch. He has a, a nice spin around one foot fadeaway that he likes to go to now too. Can still shoot from three. He's going to be able to pull those guys out on the perimeter and an isolation score off him. There's still a lot of gifts that that we shouldn't discount because he looks skinnier. I don't I don't want to say that guys. There's been players in the NBA who simply uh, were unable to put on weight. Like there's guys that. Their body frames just like don't allow it. But if you put actually right. the time into it, I, I don't think it's like a, a non-zero thing. Like he's he's I believe that he's gonna be okay. And if that's the one hang up, I'm I'm still taking number one. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And like any conversation that has him outside of the top two to me is like ludicrous. Like I I, I well, get you it. Said, it. You it said four you said good. four. You said I don't see him going off the top four and like held my breath earlier the show. I'm like, oh man. No, like I, <laughs> he's going I think four. he's awesome. Like, like you, you, who's don't, doing three? you don't have to sell me on chat. Chet's unreal. It's like look, if he goes number four, I, I'm gonna lose my mind. Like oh he my is God. They, I look, I I'm not a betting man. I'm I'm not good at this stuff. I do not think he goes fourth. If he goes outside of the top three, that team should be the team should have three and four they should have chet holmgren written down on a piece of paper and as soon as another team doesn't draft him just hand it to the commissioner before the other next pick is in to make sure you get him unbelievable okay uh that's a good way to start this episode is us bitching about chet holmgren uh, <laughs> well, coverage and the way that he's thought about but, for a while but, you know but he is like legitimately to frame this like he is someone where if he like if gonzaga loses in the second round of the ncaa tournament or some shit right and he has five fouls in 20 minutes like that will reflect poorly on him. But and, if he goes and leads Gonzaga on this run, which I think he's going to, like, I think they're going to make the final four, uh, depending on their region, probably. But like, I think they are a legitimate problem for opposing teams. Like, he could solidify himself as a very clear top pick in this draft if it goes right. Um, th- I think Chet is like the primary guy for me that like spurred this conversation. Uh, he has a lot to gain. He doesn't have that much to lose because we don't see him falling out of the top five at the very like worst case scenario, right? But no. like it, he does have a lot to gain here by playing really, really well in asserting himself in March Madness. And just beware the ads of March, right? We we saw Franz Wagner was not good in the tournament. He's been fine. Jalen Suggs went on this meteoric run, hits a half court shot. He's been a lot better. He started off slow. Cade Cunningham lost around the tournament. Johnny Juzang had me convinced he was a, a late first round pick. We shouldn't completely put all the stuff into four or five games. 
if if yep. Gonzaga does make the run, Chet's dad has recorded everything for like the last six years, and it's going to be a, a heck of a documentary. <laughs> Shout out to Dave Holmgren. He's literally been recording everything since like the grassroots level, stretching at camp when Chet was a sophomore in the college coaches section, being like, I got to throw this guy out of here. Like, no, 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 it's Chet's dad. He just records everything. Like, okay, he's at the game still recording in the stands. I, I, I love it. It's going to be a heck of a movie. Hopefully. It's – I really, really hope that – like the Chet Holmgren experience works because the fact that that man has been recording every single thing for years upon years God is going to make for, he has so much footage. Like he has so <laughs> oh, much yeah. incredible footage. I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. You're up first. Who is your pick for uh, one of the players with the most to gain oh. or lose in March Madness? Oh, I need a break after that one. That was heavy. I'm going to go with Ochai Agbaji from Kansas. So, okay. Within this was first, a weird one when you mentioned him for me earlier. So I definitely want to hear this. All one. right. So within the first month of the season, I, I sort of pegged him in the lottery range. I liked him pre-draft last year. I realized he's coming back and he played way more assertively, less drifting, running the floor hard. He clearly worked in the offseason. The stories started to trickle out about him working with NBA trainer Phil Beckner uh, with Damian Lillard, kind of take him on his wing saying, here's how we do it. Ochai Baji is 22 years old. Uh, I don't know it was the enormity of the moment, but he was bad on senior night against Texas. He was 1 for 11 from the field and 0 for 5 from 3. Two games before that, lost to TCU. He was 4 for 17. When the shooting and the efficiency dips and you're already older as it is, that's when the questions mark start to like pop up. He needs to leave the tournament on this kind of like crescendo where we forget about the age because he's shooting and playing so well and not leaving it open for criticism or interpretation of maybe this was an older guy who was hot early and now we're getting back to the guy who's supposed to be i think that's a good call the the way that you frame it that way i think is a good call the thing for me is like just no one else has stepped up right like the what's the worst case scenario he goes 23rd something like that like and, and, and best case is probably <clears throat> what like 11th like that's a pretty big yeah. swing that is a pretty big swing. It's a big swing for his pocket, for sure. Yeah. There is uh, no, no question about that. Um, yeah, no, you're right. The, the, that's a that's a really good call. And he has been hit or miss. Like, there's Mostly been... Hits, but misses lately. Yeah, like, there's been a contingent of Kansas fans I've seen that have been like, are we sure that Jalen Wilson hasn't been, like, just as good as Ochai for the back half of Big 12 play? And Jalen Wilson's been really good. Like he's actually back on my top 100 board that'll be coming out on Thursday. But yeah, you're right. Like Ochai needs to like kind of bring it back a little bit. He needs to be the player that settles things for Kansas uh, more so than he has been uh, over the course of the last couple months. I, I I do agree with this. I think this is a really good one. All right, that's good. We're on the board. One each. We're on we're on the board. Okay. Uh, my next pick is going to be Jaden Ivey. And I understand that this is a uh, this is an easy one. <laughs> but if Jaden Ivey leads Purdue to a Final Four push and averages like 22 points a game and eight assists and like goes nuts, right, for some reason, mm-hmm. uh, there is going to be a contingent that sees him as the next John Morant and pushes that. I don't think he's that. Uh, I don't think he has anywhere near the live dribble passing ability. Uh, I don't think he has quite as much explosiveness as what Jaw did. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that people who are trying to make that comparison 
are making the comparison almost solely based off of like the way that they look as opposed to like their actual games. But you know what? Like John Morant is uh, super athletic and Jaden Ivey is probably going to be a top like seven or eight athlete among all point guards in the NBA, maybe even a little bit better than that. Um, he's not John Morant. John Morant is like one of one, you know, freak show athletically. That's also like one of the five best passers or like, you know, incredible live dribble decision makers in the NBA. So like th- th- there is a difference there, I think in overall skill set, and, you know, I think people kind of forget how good John Morant's sophomore season was at Murray no, State. It's ridiculous. Dig back to the like, numbers. And, and that's, I don't think it's a, an argument really, but even on conference, he had like 30 against Alabama and 25 against this high major team. Like it was ridiculous. Yeah. John Morant was putting up like everyone like melted down about Trey Young's numbers, rightfully so, because Trey Young was unbelievable uh, in his season at Oklahoma. But uh, John Morant averaged like 25 points and 10 assists per game at Murray State. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> how is that even like a possible uh, like numbers, basically? And, you know, Jaden's just nowhere near that level passer. And because no. of that, it kind of closes off the rest of his game. Um to where people can kind of sit on what he's doing as opposed to having to play more honestly onto opposing shooters, even though he can make the occasional like really high, high level live dribble pass. But if he was to go on a big run, you better believe that like that archetypical point guard kind of thing where teams are looking for guys who can stir the drink guys who can be the guy that uh, leads the way for their team. He, he would emerge as very clearly the best guard and I think would put himself in the mix to genuinely be taken number one overall if he leads Purdue on a big NCAA tournament push. It, it's twofold a little bit too. A lot of that's going to depend on scheme and the way that Purdue plays. If they're going to continue to play inside out and continue to play through Travion Williams and Zach Eady, depending on who's starting, I don't know if he's going to necessarily have the reps to show that unless they get out and transition a little bit back and forth. Uh, it's going to still be pick and roll stuff for NBA guys to see what he does when he turns the corner, gets a mid range. And then defensively, he he's too athletic. He's too fast. He's too gifted to not fight around screens, better disrupt some stuff from steals and deflections. If he adds all those things, maybe I can see it, but he's going to have to really score to consistently uh, throughout the tournament, throughout each game to show that he's going to be able to, to make that jump. But the, the voices, the whispers will get louder if he does that and brings him to the Final Four, potentially the National Championship. Purdue as a whole is going to have to defend better too. Um, but we'll, we'll see kind of a, a lot of this. And I had somebody ask me the other day, like, who's your Final Four picks? I'm like, I don't know because this, this draft, this season is so wide open. Like, I have to see the brackets. Yeah. I have to see who they're matched up against too. Yeah, no, this is a more matchup dependent March Madness than I can remember uh, heading into it. Okay, Penny, give me your second uh, player with the most to gain or lose in March Madness. I am going to Durham, and I'm going to go with A.J. Griffin. So for A.J. Griffin, he's averaging just over 10 points per game. He's done enough in some games, like when he was at North Carolina, at Louisville, at Syracuse, that – I don't see some scouts moving like too far one way or another. But a loss in the shuffle is that Coach K's last game at Cameron Indoor. That's a, another podcast. There hasn't been any call outs that AJ Griffin was like two for five or he was five for seven against Pitt. He's got the injury history. He has to answer questions about consistency. I, I like that Travis Branham at 24 7 called this out in his last mock. He said this question about functional athleticism. If you watched AJ in high yeah. school, 
he's doing 360s on the break. He's taking off the foul line. He's doing all this stuff. He hasn't showed that. I don't know if it's injury. I don't know if it's comfort level. I don't know if it's body just kind of getting back to to that pre-injury form. And I'm can, not can like, I can I hypothesize on that real quick? Absolutely. So I think that Duke this year, particularly, uh, especially in the second half of the year, uh, their court has just looked so cramped and messy. Uh, Paulo Bancaro, Mark Williams, those guys are legit NBA big men mm-hmm. that operate mostly in Paulo's case, like in the mid post, Mark Williams often in the dunker spot, um, certainly not a threat to step out and shoot regularly. And I think the teams just kind of condense in uh, into the paint, knowing that those two guys are kind of Duke's, you know, uh, I don't want to say Mark Williams is like a primary option for Duke, but like he averages what 12 points shoot 70% from the field. Like it, it is a real option for them. And then Paulo obviously is their number one option. So like, you know, are, are you worried about Trevor Keel shooting? No. Are you worried about Wendell Moore shooting? No. So I think that what happens is teams kind of condense in the paint and there is just absolutely no space for anyone to drive because even like Trevor Keels throughout the course of the season, another guy that, we think is like a pretty real athlete, you know, on some level, not like a phenomenal athlete, but for college, a real athlete uh, who can drive, who can get into the paint, who's a bowling ball. Uh, even his drives, it seems like, have not been as effective uh, over the course of the second half of the season. So I, I think it's more of a spacing issue it, than it, could, it is like an athleticism issue for A.J. Griffin. It could be, but we talk about Mark Williams, like that guy always finds a way. Like his last four games, he had eight points, ten rebounds, four blocks against Virginia. 28 and yeah. 12 against Syracuse, who looked like a top 10 guy. Uh, quad against Pitt, only two points to rebound. 16 and 13 against North Carolina. I see yeah. him going this way. Uh, if anything, he's a guy that I don't think that he necessarily has to show like too much more than what he has. He's probably going to be a mid first guy. But for AJ, if, if people start honing in the defense a little bit too, like away from the ball and his rotations, they're not good. Like that North Carolina game, even like closing out, it'd be like the wrong move on like one pass away to the next guy, and he's yeah. kind of like lost in space. So he's doing that. He's shooting the ball particularly well. If that fades, there's no real pop off the bounce. He's not really defending. He could dip a little bit. It, we gave him benefit of the doubt for a while. He popped back up, and now people sort of have him solidified as like five to eight. If he puts up four goose eggs, there's a chance it could go down more in that range. And there's just going to be more of a where does this guy fit if he's not doing the stuff that he's being sold as. No, I like that one a lot. Um, I, I do. Like, I think that's a really good one. And by the way, like if he goes out and balls out, like I think that there is. Sure. He could go he'll, he'll probably like, there, There's a chance. Yeah. The conversation will occur. Like if he goes out and balls out while Paulo's just okay, like the conversation will be. Oh, should we take AJ Griffin ahead of Paulo? Right, like that. I, I watched that Louisville game, and that was my first takeaway. I said maybe we've just missed, and he's woken up, and, and Paulo isn't quite the guy that that we've propped up. Yep. No, I think that's a really good one. Okay, uh, let's take a quick commercial break, and we will be back with more here. Two more guys here, and then we'll get into the rest of our segments. Okay, we're back. My next guy, this is going to come as a surprise to oh. dear sweet Matthew Penny over there. Ty Ty Washington. He's uh, on my list. Yeah. Ty Ty, I think, needs a good march because it's 
been a while since we have seen like the p- very positive end of what he's capable of. Like he got back in that Arkansas game, played 35 minutes. Wasn't great. Right. Like goes three for 12 from the field does have three assists and like plays reasonably well, but they lose that game. Right. Um, Mississippi. Like I'm almost willing to throw that out because that's just a fucking piss poor team. Um, and then, Against Florida, I thought he did a really good job of passing and getting his teammates involved and, you know, playing a role. But it wasn't like he was out there balling like you would typically see from a lottery pick, right? So I think that we need – like it would be good for scouts to see the full picture of what Ty Ty Washington can be a tournament again. Uh, It's really been like since the start of February – since we've seen like what he's capable of and part of this is due to injury. Like I totally get it. Like it's not really fair. I think in some level to like ascribe all of this to Ty Ty, but you know what? Like it is a results driven business on some level and we've seen Kentucky guys drop because you know, they haven't played as well as they could have in the biggest moments or um, they haven't been actualized in uh, the Kentucky scheme, right? Like I actually think Ty Ty works in this Kentucky scheme. Uh, Kentucky is a really good basketball team that is, you know, a very real final four contender. I think Ty Ty is going to have a killer March. I think he's the kind of guy that thrives on the big stage but I think he needs it. Like if he doesn't have a big March, like I think that we could be talking about a guy that does go where Matt has kind of projected him for a large portion of the year in the twenties. Yeah. And the twenties or, or, or late teens. That's okay. He's been banged up. He has been hurt. And it's not really himself. Yeah. It, it seems like that. I circled the 28 points against Tennessee on January 15th. When that was like the last real noteworthy, like here's prospect game. Then it's 10, six and five or 14 yeah. or four points. And, the three the three point shot the numbers have regressed. He's handled the ball a little bit better and turned it over less. So maybe that's just a, a little bit of the the pendulum swimming yeah. back and forth. I can't wrap even my head against around. like Alabama, which is what I would say like was a pretty good prospect game. Like I thought he played pretty well in that one. Yeah, um, it was still like fifteen points, couple assists, couple turnovers. You know, shot. I think it was like probably like six of 13, 6 of fourteen from the field. Like it, it was not you know, an incredible game by any stretch. A lot of scouts seem to really like him. I don't know how many people love him. I haven't talked to any scouts say like, that's the guy. Yeah. Like, I, I love him. And and when you get into actual draft season of putting names upon the board, you want to be loved. You don't want to be liked. Because if you're liked, that's when you keep sliding down. You want to leave yep. scouts with saying, he bounced back, he was injured. That's what happened the last 10 games. Or was it anything else? The lights were on. It was bright. He performed just like he did at Arizona Compass High School when they're making their national championship run. And we're, we're, he's back to the guy early in the season where he pegged in the top seven or so. Uh, that would probably be high at, at this juncture. Yeah. Did he get back to 10 Yeah, I think so. No, look, I mean, I've been as high on Ty Ty as anyone this year, and I've, I'm at 14 right now. Like, I, I think I'm lower on Ty Ty than like what the consensus seems to be right now, which is like weird given how much I like him Sorry, and I. how, yeah, like I, I'm a big Ty Ty Washington fan, but like I keep getting to the point where I'm just like, okay, like I have to, I have to put Dyson Daniels ahead of him. I have to put Ben Mather in ahead of him. Like it's, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. I it's, think at this it's point. production it's size and it's age too. It's a little bit older. Yeah. Like you gotta be a little bit better. Okay. Uh, you're up, Matt. 
Ooh, is my third. I am going with Tari Eason from LSU as such a versatile big, and he's now shooting 37% from three. He's everywhere on defense, has a self-creation off the dribble. He's great in transition, had 24-7 and seven against Arkansas and Jalen Williams. He had 20-9 and OT win against Alabama. Can he use this big stage a la Tyrus Thomas? And relax, it's not Tyrus Thomas. He's not going to go fourth overall. But what he did back for LSU in 2006, like can he have – these moments where I see a lot of the big clustered together and I've bailed out on my big board where I kind of have him, Jalen Duran, Mark Williams, Walker Kessler, all just bunched. They're all together. Like there's no true separation. Tell me one day or another, this guy's here. I like Mark Williams this week. Walker Kessler's below him. Tari has an opportunity to really jump that whole group. If this stuff's on full display, when the lights are brightest here in March. No, I, I agree with that. Like, I think he could really move into that, like, late lottery, like, strong consideration range with a big march here. Um, LSU's in a weird spot. Like, they have not played well over the course of the latter part of the season, and they need him. Like, they, they need Tari to be the guy that carries the load. It, it feels like he's better coming off the bench, too, for whatever reason. I don't know why that is um but like the games where he's come off the bench like it's been a little bit better recently so i i don't know i don't know what to do with tari eason at this point like i I think that he's great defensively and i buy the jumper and the touch a little bit more this is why he was one of my first prospects of the week uh on the podcast but uh i I don't know man it's a it's a it's an interesting skill set i think uh it's almost more like you play him as like a four switchable five uh, at times because of how strong he is as opposed to like you know a two or a three on the wing it's almost he has to show you his game too you you have to get comfortable because what you just did there is we don't really know what he sort of projects out of the nba it's it's funky yeah. it works he produces that the numbers are there they're good because of him but you have to see it on, on multiple occasions and probably now as the tournament wears on and, and gets here for him to do it against different looks, too, for NBA guys to then say, hey, I'm comfortable taking this guy over Mark Williams, where his role is yeah. pretty clear-cut. He's he's a run, protect the rim, uh, rebound, dunk, has some nastiness to him, will snatch rebounds. Tarisen's like doing Euro steps and finishes his right hand from 12 feet away and shooting threes off his shoulder. And it's like, did that guy just do – and then he's right. back and forth. So it's, it's harder. It's harder to like conceptualize what he looks like in the NBA. Totally. Um, okay, I wanted to go way off the board for my last one. I got, I'm way off the board, too, for my last one. Kind of a bailout. My last, my last guy is Dalen Terry oh, from Arizona. I, 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 hey, I, I like it. I had a, a so, similar talk today about Dalen Terry. I really like Dalen Terry. I've kind of considered him like a 2023 first rounder for the whole year. But you know what? Arizona is one of the three best teams, three most talented teams in college basketball. And if they make a run, I think he's going to play a critical role in them making a run. You look across the board, there's really only one significant flaw uh, in his game, and it's the shooting. shooting yeah. But this is a guy that is you – no, know, it is. And yeah. he shoots 30% from three, right? And, like, the three does not look good coming out of his hand. And, like, I think he should return to college basketball and, like, set himself up to really improve that jumper. But if Arizona makes Final Four – and he plays really well and like turns two games just with his incredible infectious defensive energy. He's six foot seven with a seven foot wingspan. Uh, he is a legit NBA level athlete on the wing. Uh, 
he still finds a way to score efficiently. Like he really finishes well around the rim. Uh, he rebounds, he passes at a high level. Like he essentially runs point for them, like a decent amount of the time along with Kirk Creesa. So like, these are skills that NBA teams look for. And then they often think that they can just kind of fix the shot along the way. He has everything else that teams look for. And if he really emerges uh, in terms of his high profile uh, moments in March, I think we could be talking about a guy who's 2023 first round grade gets bumped up into 2022, uh, even though he's not really ready for the NBA yet, I think. Possible. We have a dozen freshmen at the end of the first round who aren't ready for the NBA, and he could seize the moment with a really yeah. good Arizona team that, that I anticipate making a run. That's a team I, I actually would be surprised if they didn't make it out of the first weekend. So it's, yeah. it's always going to be wild. Who knows? But I loved Purdue last year. They lost to North Texas. It, it happened. Well, it, and you know what? Like with Dalen, he's the same age as most freshmen. Like he's a sophomore or second year freshman or whatever it is. He's the same age as like Paulo Bancaro and Chet Holmgren and those guys. And I'm sort of going to piggyback on yours for my last one because it's very similar. And mine are sort of like the Malachi effect guys in those like six to 10 seed ish range who like we mm. haven't really talked about. And, and as we're recording here, Wake Forest is losing to Boston College in overtime. I think a guy like Alonis Williams and, and Jake LaRavia could really use the tournament. That would really help yeah. their stock if they're able to be seen. Is there somebody from uh, a UConn that, that pops up? Is there somebody from a, a lower level school that all of a sudden you, you fall in love with a little bit? And you're not completely going to judge that on, but any guys who had hesitations that all of a sudden pop back up and now have the chance to, to play, that, that's something that the tournament can, can really boost more than anybody. Is it... Is it Johnny Juzang part two? Is it Jaime Hawkins part two? Like there's so many guys in that cluster that we don't even know who it's necessarily going to be until conference tournaments are over. Yeah. No, I think those are two guys that, uh, look, I- I've loved Laravia all year, been in on him. I have a write up coming on Thursday, um, within the top 100. I think I have him as like a top 45 guy. So, um, I'm there like at this point, I really like Jake and I would like for him to play in the NBA. Cause I think it's a really fun skill set. Um, <laughs> Okay, let's do prospect of the of the week next because my prospect of the week is someone that actually kind of fits within this, and it'll be a good way to transition uh, out of this conversation and into mailbag. Okay, so my prospect of the week this week is Ryan Rollins at Toledo. Yes, and I look. I, I think we just like kind of fucked up on this the whole year. Like, <laughs> oh, Why he was like? So here's the thing: we get one guy per week. Ryan Rollins and the guy I'm going to do have been like in the holster. Like there's there's three or yeah, four guys. Yeah, yeah, I'm like yeah. ah, I got to do Jalen Williams. Ah, like, like I got to do Jaron Holmes this week. Like he he's been there, just not uh not necessarily like fire the gun on it. But like I feel like with prospects of the week, for the most part, for us, we're like. Oh yeah, like that guy's like an interesting second round pick, or maybe like a you know maybe a late first if things really break right. I think Ryan Rollins is a first round pick. Oh, I'm going to say that right Stevie now. Bomb. I think Ryan Rollins is a first round this pick. year. Right he now, is, I think that I have him in my top thirty right now. Wow, We're, okay, he is one of, in the board. This is breaking news here. One of two teenagers in college basketball to be averaging 19 points. Can you name the other one? Uh, to be averaging 19 points. Oh, it's your guy. Come on, man. Johnny Davis. Is he 19? It still? It's Johnny Davis. Okay. It's Johnny Davis. He's still 19. And it's hard to find, it's harder to find these guys than you think, 
guys that average 19 points a game who are unbelievable pull-up shooters who can like play on balance and have incredible polish and can finish at the rim at a really high level, have an in-between floater game. He has a great like mid-range pull-up game that is absolutely exceptional. Um, Makes 32% of his threes, but like there is absolutely nothing broken with that three-point shot. And I think a lot of it, is because they're pull-ups and they're really, really difficult shots. He's better than a 32% three-point shooter, in my opinion. Um, It is hard to find these guys. Like, it is really, really hard to find guys that are this polished as scorers at 19 years old, regardless of what league they play in. Um, I think Rollins is a better prospect than Jason Preston was last year in the map. And Jason Preston went, 34th, 33rd, something and like spent that. spent most of his time in the G League this season, right? Right. He's spent most of his time in the G League this season. Um, I am, and he's been hurt. Like it's been, you know, hit or miss in terms of whether or not he's been on the court. Um, I, I am a big Ryan Rollins fan. Uh, his polish, his suddenness, like he's not a great athlete, but he decelerates really, really well. Yeah. And is able to kind of stay on balance, get into that pull up game at such a high level. Um, yeah, I think he's a first-round guy. I really do. And uh, if Toledo makes the NCAA tournament, they're the clear favorite in the MAC this year. Um, this is a team that will probably be a 12 or a 13 seed, and he is going to make life fucking want to play him for an opposing coach that has to scout him uh, if they can get through the MAC tournament, which is always, you know, just a mess of, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> upsets and a disaster. Yeah. yeah, just a disaster waiting to happen. Conference tournament every year. But, um, yeah, I hope that they make it. I-, I would love to see Ryan Rollins in the NCAA tournament. Yeah. I. So how much does the combo of that sort of lack of foot speed and elevation by the rim paired with the 33% shooting over two seasons? Because he's shot like 32 and 33 yeah. over, over two years. Does that scare you at all? I, I like – how hard he decelerates and jams in the break, then pull up uh, a lot of times from yep. 15 feet, 17 feet. But like the three point stuff at, at not really like the speed. Then when he goes baseline, like he had one the other day where he's fouled, but like barely dunked it. There's some wild and forced passes. So I, I like him, but I still have to like get there. I'm, I'm not ready to say he's a first round guy, but he, he definitely intriguing. Yeah. You know, I totally get what you're saying with the athleticism. I think you're absolutely right on that. Uh, that's the big concern. And that's what teams will have to get past. But his touch is unbelievable around the basket. Like his touch is really, really good. Uh, I think he might not be a guy that needs to dunk. Um, and frankly, no, like no, guys that yeah, are that's, that's four that's and a half court, yeah. like they're not going to get a ton of chances to dunk all the time. So right. I, I love his finishing package. He's a very creative player. Uh, he's great balance. Uh, his contact balance as well is actually really, really high level. So um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big fan. Uh, let, let's one. go to the, Let's go to the Matt Penny. Uh, Let's game go to a guy probably not playing tournament. And uh, my Game Theory podcast prospect of the week, I'm going – this is a futures bet. I'm going with Matt Morrell from Ole Miss. Who, beautiful. What do you say? Beautiful. I love okay, it. Okay, it is beautiful. I thought he pitiful. I'm like, ooh, rough start. Uh, I followed him for a long time through the through the circuit. And he was at Whitehaven High School. He was at IMG Academy. Really good defender in high school. Every time I played Mount Verde Academy – who was their rival, they had Cade Cunningham. He always showed up. Lights the brightest, he showed up. He was great. He's a compact athlete. He's 6'4", 200 pounds. He had 31 points in January and a win over Mississippi State. The numbers aren't super crazy, eye-popping, 12 points per game, shot 43% from the field, 39% from three. But he does do a few eye-popping plays every game with his explosion. 
the shooting percentages are much better at higher volume from about November onward. So he was kind of finding his rhythm too. He's had 14 points or more in seven of his last uh, eight games. He had 25 points, five threes on the road at Kentucky. I was going to use him last week. Then he exploded. I said, oh, well, I'm, I'm a little late here. He has a really quick flick of the wrist when it's released where he needs minimal space to get off. He starts stops really hard and can elevate and take that. Always squares himself well on the catch to his body, and he's he's never like yeah. twisting. He always finds his way back to where he needs to be. I like his first step. He knows how to use change of pace. He takes on screens well out of pick and roll. He's not going to hurry or be forced into different paces. And when he gets paint touches, he knows how to use those strong shoulders and base to bump and extend in traffic. He made a jump from freshman to sophomore year. I could see another one coming and an even bigger jump as he returns for next season. I like him as an energy sort of off-ball combo guard down the line. Yeah, I just kind of assumed that he wouldn't be a 2022 guy, so I didn't rank him in my four. On no, my I didn't either. That's coming out. Um, but I love like I love what I've seen, especially in the second half of the season. He's been really, really good. Um, e- even outside of that game that you mentioned uh, earlier this year, like uh, the, the game I watched was like Texas A&M game. Like they got beaten by double digits and I still thought he was pretty good in that game like it's just a he's a solid guy that just knows how to play within a team construct at a high level and defend at that size too a a lot of guys are are scorers and they don't do it down the other way like he wants to sit down and defend yeah he's never like overextended it feels like which is really really good um okay mailbag time Matthew I have not looked. I have not looked at these yet. Uh, so like, I haven't looked uh, at my phone. It's, it's charging and it's on. Uh, it's on mute. So we'll, we'll do this together here. We got like forty-five questions here. Okay. <laughs> um, oh boy. Let's see here. Oh, this this is a good one. Okay, from not DB Cooper. Do you guys think NIL slash new transfer rules will impact the second round of the draft? This one and going forward. Guys like Oscar Shibwe that would yep. usually declare probably won't as it's more financially advantageous to stay in college. Would you change the type of players you target? Um, what does it mean by the second part? Change the type of players you target? I'm not totally sure, but I okay. do think that the first part of this question is worth answering. Uh I do think so. There was a report out of um, Missouri earlier this week that like some sort of group is preparing an NIL offer for Isaiah Mosley, the high level scorer out of Missouri state. And like, that's a guy that I think would have a real shot at getting a two way deal. So like if that group can put together an offer of like $400,000, essentially that's a really competitive offer with going to the NBA and like playing on the bench for you know, you're, you're, you're going to make right? you'll you'll physically make more money there than you would in the NBA, probably. Yeah, that year, um, right? Yeah, in all honesty, probably. So, and then someone like Oscar. I mean, like I, I think Oscar has a real shot to get a guaranteed deal. Honestly, he was one of the big risers on my big board. Like he's a top forty guy for me at this point, Whoa. just because it's rebounding translates. It, I understand. Well, yeah, like he'll be someone that I can guarantee you will be ranked between thirty and forty for me if he was to enter the twenty twenty two draft because I would just be like okay, I'm taking a guy at 34 or whatever. The odds this guy's going to hit are low. I feel like the the odds that Oscar Shibway plays in the NBA for a while are reasonably high just because national player of the year, competitive, plays exceptionally hard. Like, think about, is he like the hardest playing player like you've ever evaluated? <laughs> Whoa, that, that's heavy. Like, that's is his... Mo- 
He's, he's but like, hard, hardest it's a season. real conversation. Yeah, the motor like runs. He, it runs now. He's he's going to win National Player of the Year despite not being able to create his own shot. He's going to win it solely based on the back of playing harder than everyone else. It feels like. But there, there's also an inflection point where like playing harder doesn't necessarily translate to stats in the NBA. Like the the size, the physicality. I know he's big, but he's not huge. He's not seven feet tall. Like it, it does catch up. And I, I like Oscar. But for the for the question. It, it helps, and I don't know if it was, like, overstated last year and a lot of guys that went back to school was like, oh, EJ Liddell went back because, like, the NIL. Hunter Dixon went back to the NIL. No, they didn't. They went back because they had to go back. They were bad at, like, the G League camp. Like, they had to go. Now, you're talking about Oscar Shibway and Isaiah Mosley who probably have guaranteed deals where it helps. You can stay on campus, be a hero there, literally be big man on campus, and make hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's changed a lot. Uh, people are adjusting here in real time. Their staff's hiring people specifically to deal with NIL stuff because it's new for everybody. I think the market started really high and now there's some low stuff. It's going to readjust. It's helped college basketball despite people not thinking it would initially. Okay. Question number two here. Draft takes on Jabari Walker are all over the place, yet all the momentum seems to be on him leaving. What's your eval on him? Thought on declarations with this much variance, and specifically his play slash prospects after overcoming his slow start year. This is from William Whalen. My up. Uh, there, there's are, a lot of variance, and, and I think that's why we've kind of, not we've, but the NBA and NCAA has allowed people to physically test the waters, right? Like, he can just test right. and, and go back if if he doesn't like it. I haven't talked to anybody who has him as a first-round pick. There is variance in the second round. I'd be interested to see where you have him on your board. I, I, there was a time where I thought him outplaying Patrick Baldwin was going to be like a thing. Like, we'll, we'll go back yeah. and circle this game. Patrick Baldwin wasn't good. So you can't really use that one as like the stepping stone to the next level there. Where, where is he currently sitting on the San Bassini big board? As I'm I have him at 49, it looks like. Um, I think I had him at 60 on my last one. Yeah, he's he's moving up. He's creeping up my board the more I watch him. Um, Pat Baldwin, by the way, um, the difference in those two's age, like, is yeah. three months. Right. Like, they're basically the same age uh, at this point. And Jabari, like, just so drastically outplayed him. Phenomenal offensive rebounder. I'm, like, a little bit lower on the shot than what Well, that's the, that's the tricky part. Now, I was looking up to, to get it right. He shot, and, and look, it's, it's a lower number, but he's a 52% three-point shooter last year. He's a 32% shooter now. But that game of the tournament yeah. where they played Georgetown, he couldn't miss. He had like 20 in the first half. And I saw him when he was at Arizona Compass, the high school season before. I thought he'd be like this 3 and D guy. He hits threes in the tournament. I said, great. He's going to come back. He'll be drafted 25th overall. He's a 6'9", shooter, defends a little bit. And then he shoots 32% from three and kind of turns into a guy that averages nine rebounds per game. I just didn't really project that. Yeah, it, it's an interesting skill set. Like, I, I kind of wonder, like... Look, I know that there have been people on the internet that have been high on Jabari Walker and think of him as like a first-round pick the whole year. Um, the the more that I watch him, the more I wonder if I've been too low on him uh, throughout the course of the year. He's averaging 16 points and 10 rebounds in Pac-12 play. He is shooting 37% from three in Pac-12 play. Like, is it purely that like he just got off to this fucking terrible shooting start, and because of that, you know, we're undervaluing him as a prospect? 
Could, could be. He, he's, so, he, like, he's young too. And we got to give some more guys benefit of the doubt as we have with Chet Holmgren, as we have with AJ Griffin. Maybe he's similar in, in that sense that his role readjusted the, the way he played on the court readjusted. And then after 10, 12 games, once you get in a conference, it started clicking at the right time. And, and I will say this too, like when I've watched him recently, the thing that's always like been the reason why I'm not quite as high on the, um, Jabari Walker experiences the rest of the internet is I've always thought he was really stiff athletically. Yeah. Like I, I thought they played really high and like, didn't um, get the most out of what I think is like some pretty real explosiveness. I think we're starting to get to the point where he actually does like play with some bend. Um, not like, you know, high level bend or anything, but like he's starting to bend a little bit more and starting to get more functionality out of that athleticism. I don't know. Like, He's one where I'm probably going to have to go back and like really, really take a look at the end of the year here and s- decide like, have I just like kind of been too low the whole way? Cause it is possible that like I'm like, I just maybe haven't, you know, not that I haven't watched enough. Like I've watched a decent amount of Colorado, but maybe I haven't watched enough. I don't know. Test. Yeah, he's an test, Jabari yeah. Walker is an interesting one. He should test. He should absolutely use the water. Like, no. Yep. Question. Okay, final question here is a perfect way for us to transition into our next topic. Okay. From Stephen Gillespie, which prospect would be the best Bruce Wayne? That's good. Let me think. That's a great question. I'm going to go with Jabari Smith Jr., and yeah, you know what? That's actually kind of what I was thinking. Because, like, off the court, he's just like really hard worker and a little bit like soft spoken. And his coaches and people around him, like, yeah, when he gets on the court, he's like a different human being in a good sense. Like, he's got a real yeah. edge to him. He he's gritty. He's feisty. He fights back. He and now he's like yelling at when he's making shots. Like, I, I think that's the guy because you have to have that duality of of being a a civilian on one side and the the Cape Crusader on the other one and. He's been he's definitely been Auburn's Bruce Wayne and Batman to me. Well, and like it depends on like what Bruce Wayne we're talking about. Yeah. There have been so many iterations <laughs> right. of it over the years. Right. Like right. we're gonna talk about like the Pattinson one. Like I, I don't know who the most emo prospect is in the twenty twenty three or twenty twenty two NBA draft, but like uh um, so the oldest ones weren't Brad Davidson just taking charges walking down the street. Yeah, like the uh, I don't know. Emo and basketball doesn't typically mix all that often. No, uh, into not, a not, into a I'm, skill I'm, package. I'm, you're making me dig into other prospect names right now. That, that's I think but, that's a good one. But then, like, um, like the Michael Keaton Batman, like was like weird and bizarre. Like he was like a strange person, like a strange like recluse. That's Tim Tim Burton too. Yeah, and like I don't. Have you watched those movies recently? Yeah, you know what? I actually have, and not like start to finish. Yeah, they I always to. somehow pop back up on, on CBS, uh, CBS, geez, TBS or TNT or, or one of those, and they don't age as well as as I remember. They, they're like way cornier, and I was just young when I watched them, and I've been obsessed with Batman since yeah. I was two years old. So you, you hold a place in your heart. You don't want to go back, and especially Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. It's like, whoa, boy. Oh, those are bad oh, ones. Oh, yeah. They're, oh, those are just bad movies. Yeah. Like the, the first one with Keaton does not age that well. Um, because it's just so like 1980s, early 1990s. Like it's kind of a mess. But Jack Nicholson I think, is awesome. 
He's so good. He's yeah. so good in that movie. The the problem is that like it's it's like super Robert Wool and like then there's Kim Basinger and like it's it's kind of a mess. The Batman Returns is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it's Vito. so good. Michelle like and like Danny DeVito playing like horny Penguin Man. Like <laughs> it's fucking incredible. Paint. Yeah, I was reading some article or, or saw some some picture on Instagram the other day of like his makeup took like hours and hours and hours on end every single yeah. day. And he was just like, so cranky coming out of there. They're like, perfect. Go, go be Chester Carpod. Go be the penguin, whatever it is. The other weird thing with those old Batman movies. And we're just like totally disregarding this question on some level. No way. But Jabari like, Smith Jr. It's a good answer. Yeah. Jabari Smith. That's our answer. Yeah. But like the, the thing with the first two, the Keaton Batman movies is I think that like people forget how little, Michael Keaton is actually in those movies. Like they aren't Michael Keaton, Batman movies. Like the first one is a Joker movie. It's not a Batman movie. Uh, The second one, like I feel like Michael Keaton, like doesn't really even show up for a while. There's a lot of backstory. There's, it's almost more like Christopher Walken than there is Michael Keaton in that one. Yeah. It's like, there's definitely more DeVito. I would venture. Like there, there almost has to be more screen time with Danny DeVito in his weird, like fucking penguin lair. And then doing um, like whatever plan he's doing with Christopher Walken. Um, and then Catwoman as well. Like Michelle Pfeiffer is like a huge part of those movies. So like, or that movie. So like it's, yeah. they aren't really Batman movies. And that's like just such an interesting concept, especially in light of like this new movie, the Batman that just came out Oz- that we want to transition to talk about. Oswald um, Cobblepot was his name, not Chester Cobblepot. I'm mixing the Goonies yeah. and Batman at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I, I just kind of, all, all classics. I figured we'd get to it whenever we got to the Batman yeah. here. Cause the penguin plays a real role. Um, I love this movie. Mm. Um, I thought the Batman was incredible. And now, like, please, spoilers. Like, we're going to talk about this movie. Like, we are absolutely going to, like, talk a lot about the Batman and everything that happens over the course of this three-hour, like, superhero noir um, genre movie that almost has more in common with Seven than it does a Batman movie. Um, Okay, so... I'm giving you three, two, one. Okay. Um, I hope that that's long enough for people to get out of here with spoilers. Okay. I love this movie. Uh, It is like exactly my kind of movie. It has one of my favorite movie stars on the planet in Robert Pattinson. Mm -hmm. Um, It has one of my favorite like movie stars turned character actors on the planet in Colin Farrell. Um, I thought Zoe Kravitz was fucking unbelievable as Catwoman. Everything about this movie in terms of its set design and in terms of the way it was shot, it's lighting. Like I love the old noir movies from like the 1940s. There was no lighting. lighting. Yeah, really. (laughs) But that's, that's a choice, right? Um, Like I love old noir movies from the 1940s. I love old noir movies from, you know, the 1970s, like, you know, even like French connection, I think kind of fits in this Chinatown kind of fits in this. I love old noir movies from the nineties, like David Fincher movies, like seven and things like this. Right. So I, this is like firmly in the pocket for me. Um, 
I, I loved it. I thought it was executed exceptionally well. I, I am, um, I am so glad that this iteration of a Batman movie exists. Yeah, me too. I, I, it fits into sort of like the Christopher Nolan type remakes reprisals. It not, yeah, but but still fits as a standalone. Three hours was an experience. I had to time. I go to the bathroom a lot, so I had to like time when I was going to not like miss too much. <laughs> So Batman is in like jail at one point. I'm like, okay, nothing's going to happen here. So I like ran out with the bathroom, like ran back in. I had to. My other criticism was, where was that supposed to be? Because it rained all day, every day for the whole movie. Like, I think it was sort of New York-y, Chicago-y, Times Square, Gotham. It was always raining. Uh, but but other than that, like, I, I liked the character development. I, I did like the Riddler. I, I thought Ron Patterson was really good. There was a few times where I was like, okay, just pull back the emo, like, 26 percent it was just like too much like the hair was like too much and and the, and the dye job was like a little bit too black I'm like we get it like you you listen to dashboard confessional in the back cave like it's all good dude like we'll, we'll, we'll get through this together we'll, we'll fight crime oh overall though i was sort of pleasantly surprised because i went in with really no expectations I, I went in saying i'm a huge batman fan like don't have to blow me away just make sure it's okay in the universe and i felt like it did and, and despite it's being so, three hours, the last hour got a little bit corny, like the dialogue, and there was a few stretches where yeah. I was like, eh, we could cut a half hour here. 220 yeah. to 235 could have worked. Three hours, it did start to feel three hours at the end, but I liked that world so much that I didn't mind that it was as long as it was. Yeah, I'll talk about the end here in a minute because I think it's probably my least favorite part. Um, but just the, you bring up like Gotham, right? And Part of what I loved about it was it felt like Gotham, like as a standalone entity. Like it didn't feel like Chicago. It didn't feel like New York to me. It felt like a city that is different than any city that we've seen previously. Like that was actually like the one thing with the Nolan movies that I thought wasn't always incredible. It always felt like Chicago. Chicago. Like you saw the skyline of Chicago. Like it was always like a Gotham like banner over like, no, it's Gotham. The Bulls don't play here. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, they're like Pittsburgh, like because they I think shot Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> yeah, in Pittsburgh, Dark, yeah. Right? So right. like they wore their their jerseys for Steelers colors. Yeah, totally. So like it's it, it is a really impressive achievement, I think, with set design. Um, I love the idea of just making it rain the whole time. Like I thought that it like oh, just kind of made it like it, man, it rained look really like slick and like grimy in a way that I thought was impressive. Um, I loved like they completely like eschewed all costumes except for Batman. Right. Um, like even Zoe Kravitz, like she's not wearing a Catwoman costume. She's just wearing like a beanie on her head. Which I liked. Essentially. Which I liked. Yeah. Just, like, cut holes and, like, and pull it over an actual ski mask. Right. And like, it has like the two little points at the end, but they aren't really points. They're just like the way the cloth is designed basically. Mm-hmm. And like where the stitch points are, um, like the penguin is not like he's disfigured, but like, he's not like disfigured. Like, yeah, he's not literally a penguin like Danny DeVito was with black sledge coming out of his mouth. Um, the Riddler is just like a guy. Like that's, that's the coolest invention of this movie. I think like, is someone who grew up like on the Jim Carrey Riddler, right? Like this was fucking dark and it, it was, was awesome. And it was oh, so from cool. The, like from the jump, from the jump, it starts yeah, like, like, you better be ready. Like we're throwing the ball well, up as soon as, as soon as the horn goes here. 
Paul Dano's like going for it, and he go he's going for it like in a big way. I thought he was unbelievable. I think that that is probably mm, I, like it's so hard to like throw in like let's remove like the whole, the two first movies with like Jack Nicholson and Danny DeVito because they're just like such different. Yeah. worlds it feels like to me like th- this movie is just so drastically different than those movies like you remove those i think this is probably my second favorite performance like since the mid 90s uh of any villain in a batman movie uh i would say heath ledger's joker is obviously like the best one and i don't think that this tops that but um it's really impressive like there was, he's there was bane bane grew on me with time as, as i re- went back did? and watched yeah, more me too Better than Ra's al Ghul, yeah. but that was a, a different type of villain altogether, too. Yeah, I agree with that. I do agree with that. Better than all the Schumacher villains, which was like just a nightmare. Um, freaking Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy. And, Everyone chill. Yeah, it was. Yeah. The Two-Face was way over the top. The the sort of also scary part is, and, and Dark Knight did a good job of this for, for the most part, too, is just like the realism, just sort of like yeah. their internet building of militias and, and misinformation and disinformation and people really believing it. Like that was like, man, some of this stuff like could happen. And, and yeah. it, it wasn't like Poison Ivy in the Batman where she's like kissing Robin and he like that's that's not happening. Yeah, part part of me, I, I liked that, I think. But I think that, like, the reason that didn't come together for me totally, and that that's the end part where, like, I was just like, okay, like, this is fine. It was clunky. That, the end with the water, like, that was all a little it clunky. felt clunky, right? Like, it felt like it was almost tacked on at the end because there's this really tight um, detective story right throughout it. Like, this guy is trying to find the Riddler or trying to find, you know, Edward, whatever the fuck his name is, right? Um, there he's trying to find this guy. And then at the end, there's just like this big plot that kind of pops up. And it happens in the Dark Knight too, right? Like this is what happens when they're out on the boat in the Dark Knight and he's making um, – Yeah, even that. I was like, like okay, we don't need to do that. Right? Like, yeah. okay, whatever, cool. But like – just this, like having just like a serial killer on the loose and then finding the serial killer. I was like, yes, this is amazing. Cool. Yeah, cut. You didn't have to have after cut. that. You could have just cut there. You could have ended with him doing whatever in the other cell and just have that part be the end. Yeah. Like you have a two hour and 25 minute movie here. Great. The last 30 minutes, like, was just like, okay, whatever. It's not even like it wasn't well done. And I found the thematic, like, idea of this guy creating an online militia to go attack Gotham, like, was actually like interesting from yeah. an intellectual standpoint, but like, I don't know. It just didn't fit with the rest of the movie weirdly for me, even though like it fits in terms of the darkness. I don't know. Like it, it didn't feel like they did the legwork for it in a way that, um, you know, totally lined up for me. Um, so did you, did you like Pattinson? I did. I did. I liked him a lot. And I also liked that he wasn't, he wasn't Christian Bale and like Christian Bale. I think it was the dark Knight rises when he gets like the crap kicked out of him. And he takes a yeah. shirt off. And he's like enormous. It's like, Holy crap. Like that's Batman. Like Robin Pattinson looked right. big, but it did look more like he could be on his motorcycle, like going down the road. Right. You might not know that like that guy's Batman. I liked how they interwove him within Gotham, within kind of the community as what <laughs> the community wants to talk about. But he was like the superhero, really, like among us or, or among those right. characters over there. But the the most important question 
from me to you is what was the score on Letterbox? Four and a half out of yeah. five. It would have been it would have been five until the end. Like I was like firmly in the pocket. Like this is a five. The thing that the other thing I really loved about this movie was they didn't do it as an origin story, and they didn't do it as a like this guy is like firmly Batman, right? Like people know who Batman is at this point, but he's like two years into being Batman. I thought that was a really creative idea that is like something that is pretty different from what we've seen. Typically these first movies, like they're all origin stories or in the Keaton universe, like Batman was established at this point. It seemed like, right. Yeah. This one, it's like, well, he's still trying to find his feet, but he's, is Batman. Like it's a, it's a really interesting way in. It starts as Batman. You didn't have to do like the full backstory. I think they kind of leaned on. Well, you did Batman Begins with Nolan. We don't have to like begin ours. Uh, yeah. I'll leave this. Here, here, here's my last Batman point. So when I was 23 or 4, I had my tonsils taken out. Because as deep as my voice sounded, there was a time where my tonsils were so big I couldn't breathe and people couldn't understand me. So I went on an anesthesia. They took it off. I wake up and the nurse says, you lost a lot of blood, but you're going to be okay. I said, I have my tonsils out. Like, what? What? So I swore. I said, How old are you at this point? I'm 23 or four. I'm a prep school. I'm coaching a prep school. So I woke up. I said the F word, right? She goes, We don't have to talk like that in here. I'm like, Lady, you just told me, like, I lost a lot of blood. I was getting thrown. So when Alfred was on the bed, this man is in a coma. He wakes up, wakes up after how many days? The first thing Batman says to him is, You lied to me. You know the feeling that must be if this guy's in a coma and he wakes up. He's like, come on, Bruce. Like, can I get five minutes? Like, I, I haven't eaten. Like, I, I've been in a coma. You lied to me. You said it's like, geez, man, just like slow down. That was one part I laughed. I'm like, oh, I can't imagine God. waking up from coma or surgery and immediately getting like the full Batman experience. That's amazing. Do you want more of these movies? I do. I do. I don't want like a yeah. hundred of them. Like, I don't want like every other year there's one. But if there's there's one or two more, I'm definitely in. It yeah, left, the, it left want, enough loose threads where we can do a few more. And I, I usually at like three, it's like, that's okay. That's enough. Like I was glad I, I lived and hung on every word Christopher Nolan did for his three there. And then the last one I was like, okay, like we're done. That's good. Yeah. I wonder with this one, if there's like, I think that they'll do three it is kind of my bet. Um, I can't imagine that Robert Pattinson's going to want to do more than three of these. Cause if you look at his career, he's just had so many varied interests in what he enjoys doing that. Like, I can't imagine he's going to want to be locked into being Batman for like a, you know, 15 year period of his career. Right. right. Um, I, I would like as many of these as possible. I would hope that they keep this like gritty, um it was a detective movie like that was the best part like it was a full-on dude is it it just like i love how they comment on this guy just like walking in wearing a costume like it didn't like he had gadgets (laughs) but like it wasn't like he was like overly gadgeted right it was just okay it's just a detective here wearing a costume looking at the scene of the crime while the rest of the cops are uh looking at the scene of the crime in their cop uniforms. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and, and, they and then there's them, just like, like, who brought the freak? Like, what, what are we doing? This guy's wearing a costume. We're, we're getting riddles here. We're getting clues. I, I thought right. the riddles were, were very clever too. the way they sort of outlined those. It didn't feel cheesy. 
No, I agree. Like, I, I thought it was really good. Like, I, I, I loved the, I loved it. Like, I, I think that that is a movie also that's going to age really well because it photographed exceptionally well. Yeah. Um, on camera, I thought. Penny, we're out of here in an hour fifteen. We did well. That was good. I feel we like did great. We did great. Some prospects, some Batman. That's really all we can ask. Tell the people where they can find you. Find me on Twitter, Matt underscore Penny, and, and back here, I'm sure, in about 48 hours or so, talking more tournament. I'm sure we'll do some stuff next week after the, the pairings and the seedings are announced and be watching a lot of basketball in the meantime. Yeah, the plan is for us to do Selection Sunday here with Penny. Um, I will – it's a good question what the rest of this week looks like from a podcast perspective. I really want to do like an MVP discussion um, at some point in the NBA because I find the MVP – race this year fascinating i think it's probably the best one that i can remember um just three guys that are having absolutely historic seasons in nikola Jokic, joel Embiid, and Giannis and um I- i'm really excited to talk about that i also uh have a big board coming out this week so please go subscribe to the athletic keep me employed you can go to the athletic.com slash game theory and subscribe to the show that or subscribe to the athletic that way. It's like $1 for the next six months or something like that. Like, please go subscribe this. There's never a better time to do it than now. Uh, but for now, this has been the game theory podcast. Please remember rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. Go subscribe to the YouTube channel, game theory podcast with Sam Vecini at YouTube. Um, we will be back later this week with more, but until next time we will talk soon.